Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Sy preaches out of 2 Peter with a message called Grow in Grace. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter, the third chapter, verses 13 to 18. 2 Peter, chapter 3, 13 to 18. The message this morning is taken out of those verses there, especially in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God to us, but in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in the, of those matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand with ignorance and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. I don't need to remind you, it's on the, the news all around us, the darkness of the world that we live in. The sin that's around us, even though the world, apart from Christ, doesn't even want to consider that there is such thing as, as sin, but we're surrounded by it. And if we are to make an impact in the, this world, if it's to, to change, even though we know that scripture tells us that things are progressively going to get worse before Christ comes again, if we are, as a church, to make a difference, even in the face of this falling world that we live in, we must do it by our own growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to resist being carried away by the errors of the world around us. So in that regard, as we look this morning at the truth of this message that Peter gives us, there are three things, three chapters in the life of a person who is regenerate. And that is sin itself. Sin has a chapter in our life. Regeneration has a chapter in our life. And life itself. And as we look at the life to come in context with, with our life. So let's take each of those three, beginning with sin. Sin is death. Sin is death. That is, it is a disease whose sure outcome is spiritual and eternal death. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die, not because God says so, but because death as the consequence of sin is interwoven into the fibers of the human condition, our, our fallen condition. Sin, when it is finished, bringing forth itself, will bring forth death. And it need scarcely be said that Death does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean the end of, of all things. Death never means annihilation. A tree, for example, is said to be dead, not because it has ceased 
to exist, but because it no longer exercises its normal functions. A tree is still there, but it's no longer taking its sustenance from the ground, but merely a leafless trunk in the ground of the earth. And a man is said to be dead, not because he has ceased to be, but because he no longer functions as a human being. And in like manner, a soul is said to be dead in consequence of this moral malady, because the will and the heart and the conscience no longer can do its proper work. They have no practical grasp on the invisible and eternal things, and they make no response then to the appeal of the Holy Spirit. That's sin. But what about regeneration? Regeneration marks the important crisis in the history of the soul. It's the arrest and reversal of the, the process of spiritual disease. Regeneration stops that process. Regeneration is a change for the better in the spiritual province of things. And it occurs when a person fixes his eyes upon the atoning death of Christ and receives its power into his life, willingly desires to receive it and accept it. The acceptance of Christ marks the favorable passing out of that crisis because at that instance, the work of regeneration brought by the spirit and the soul enters into what the Bible calls newness of life. Regeneration is a newness of life. And then let's take a look at life itself. Life is an unspeakable gift. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Life in ever-increasing power, in other words. And this life means not merely the removal of spiritual disease, but the awakening of all the energies of the soul. The Bible says old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. New hopes, new purposes, new aspirations. And the person is turned around, as it were. He was facing toward eternal darkness, and now he looks with eager eyes toward truth and, and goodness and then strives with a constantly increasing desire to return to his first estate, which was the likeness of God. That's the beginning. And then there is growth. The objective point uh, is character, to grow in our character, which is another name for Christ-likeness. But remember that this is not possibly the possibility of, of growth except to such as have entered into life. You cannot grow unless you've entered into life. Life is the prerequisite for growing. I must, if I thrust a, a dry stick in the ground and provide it with all possible care, as Cliff gives me several times uh, a year, especially in the summertime, all the things that grow abundantly in his yard, he gives it to me and I plant it in the ground and it becomes a dry stick before too long. But if I thrust that into the ground and I provide it with all kinds of care, theoretically, 
giving it access to the sunlight and the, the dew of the, of the morning, but I'll never have anything but a drive stick. No growth, no foliage, no fruit, because there was no life. And that's the case with many people who make frequent good resolutions, beginning of the year, I'm going to do this or that, and then strive in vain to attain to the virtues of a perfect personhood without true life. Let them begin at the beginning by accepting Christ and by doing it, entering into life. And when he begins to live, then he begins to grow. That's the promise in the Bible. He said, I am the vine, Christ said. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in you, so shall you bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And this growing then becomes the, the business of the Christian life. The man of our text, Peter, knew what he spoke about when he urged this growth in grace and in knowledge of Christ. He had been a diamond in the rough when Christ found him, a, a fisherman, blunt, headstrong, with much to overcome and, and much to learn. But as the years passed, he became a different man under the, the nurture of the Holy Spirit. And for example, he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness character, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." End of quote. The figure in Peter's mind here is that of infancy advancing to the full stature of a human being. To see, the gods of the ancients were born fully grown. All their gods born fully grown. Minerva, it is said, to have sprung all armed and born from the forehead of Jove. But Christians, Christians begin as babes in Christ and advance through certain conditions of normal growth to what the Bible says is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But how? How is that done? And here's the important matter at hand. How do Christians grow in the fullness of character? How do other infants grow? The same conditions hold in the spiritual as in the physical province with respect to the spiritual making of a human being. And so the first thing necessary for that to happen is food. Food, the saint's pablum, is the word of God. And it's both milk for babes and meat for adults. Christ is the word, the incarnate word, and we grow just in the measure in which we partake of him. It's not enough that we should gaze upon his portrait as an objective thing. How many people do you know whose grandmothers have on the wall a picture of, of Christ? In about every Catholic home in South America, you can find a picture of Christ on the wall, 
He's gazed upon there as if he's kind of a, a trinket. It's not enough, though, to gaze upon his portrait as an objective thing regarding him as chief among ten thousands, as the Bible says, and altogether lovely. But we must so receive him, take that portrait off the wall and receive him as to blend his very life with ours. But more than that, there's a, a special, a, a mystical union with him that occurs. And the Bible says, except you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. You must so receive him as to be able to say, my Lord, my Savior, my gracious intercessor. We must so eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, metaphorically speaking, as that his will shall become our will. His purposes our purposes, and we must so interchange our very being with his that we shall be able to declare, as the Bible says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The Bible says that it was the prayer of Jesus on our behalf to the Father that God would sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. People don't sit down at a, a king's table to analyze the food that's set before them, but they eat it. And so let's approach scripture, not for purposes of critical dissection, as some want to do, but to partake of it, of all of their glorious truths, to the building up of our spiritual strength and the perfecting of our character in Christ and to those who are hungry for moral sustenance. The, the songs are sweet morsels and the promises are as honey dripping from the rock. Its precepts and doctrines are milk and meat for the, the making of bone and sinew. The Bible Christians are strong Christians. They sit at a a loaded and abundant table. All the things spread before them are for the, the satisfying of their hunger and, their, and the building up of their strength. And the Bible says all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But secondly, work also is necessary for growth. Food, but work also. Food makes muscle, but work hardens it. We languish also in the church, I think, by, by reason of the fact that our new converts that come into churches do not always find enough to do. Self-conquest is demanded of us. And this means severe effort. There is a war in our members, says Paul. The lower nature contending with the, the higher for mastery. The old Adam struggling, he says, with the, the new Adam. The passions and appetites of the natural man face to face and eye to eye with the, the new hopes and ambitions. Wellington said this, he said, hard, hard pounding, gentlemen, hard pounding, gentlemen, he said to his aides at Waterloo, 
and hard-pounding indeed if in this spiritual conflict I keep my body under control. And the body says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And cross-bearing also calls for strenuous effort. And by cross-bearing, we don't mean chastisement, that we are being chastised, and that's our, our, the bearing of our cross. Cross-bearing is doing for others. The cross is the preeminent symbol for altruism. The cross of Jesus represents a voluntary work which he took up in behalf of suffering mankind. The cross of the Christian is participation with Christ in that great propaganda, as it were. That is to say, in his effort to build up the kingdom of truth and righteousness on earth, and so to deliver the race from sin. It was with this intent that our Lord said this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross, work, do for others, follow me. The work of the universal church is cross-bearing. And we heard that this morning with what the church is doing in Cuba. Can you imagine? Just this far out of its dictatorship, but yet it's already building its churches and sending forth people into the world to cross-bear. To do good at the sacrifice of personal preference, personal convenience, to do good as fishers of men, the blessedness of this service, to grow weary in toil beside the Son of God. Here's a beautiful little poem, and I love the way it ends. One more day's work for Jesus. How sweet the work has been to tell the story, to show the glory where Christ's flock enter in. Lord, if I may, I'll toil another day. Thirdly, recreation, food, growth, recreation. It's also necessary to spiritual growth. It's a proverb in common life, all work and no play makes what? Jack, a dull boy. Well, the same is true with respect to spiritual life. I'm not sure that the word service is in this connection is not a misdemeanor. The church bell calls us not to, not to service, but to the pleasures of communion with each other, with God. This is not duty, but recreation. Here in the church are the, the pleasures of friendship and fellowship. We sit together in heavenly places with Christ. But one more thing is necessary to our growth, and namely medicine. 
medicine. It's a fortunate person that never needs it. Did you read where the oldest person alive just died? 117. 117. Seems like a long time until you put that up against eternity, right? We're asking in these days, does God send trouble? It seems that that's a reasonable question to ask when you think about just this past week, the craziness in our own culture, people shot and two cops assassinated, having lunch in a restaurant, somebody shoots through the window to kill them. And just yesterday, I think it was, in a Waffle House, a deranged young man comes in and shoots up the place and kills three and injures four. This past week in Florida, another shooting in a school where one person is injured. And then the struggles of Planned Parenthood with the new ad that's being opposed. The ad reaches out to young children to describe to them ways in which they can find more pleasure in this world. And then the 25th anniversary of the Branch Davidian in that compound outside of Waco, Texas. The survivors came together in order to remember and memorialize what happened that day when our government threw in tear gas and it caught the place on fire and many of them died. But a sect nonetheless, where its leader saw himself as a messiah and tried to propagate the community with the wives of others, but yet it's still celebrated. So we asked, does God send trouble? Well, the answer is no and yes. There are two kinds of trouble, you see. The first kind is trouble which comes in immediate consequence of sin. The largest portion of our suffering is, is from the devil. There's no question about that. Shame and self-contempt, disease that come from disobedience to natural laws, political corruption, and we see enough of that these days. These are not from God. They're the consequence of sin. However, we're not warranted on that account to say that God has nothing to do with them. He overrules them for the good of his children. And the Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God. He's stronger in this matter than the adversary of our souls. It was Peter's repeated prayer that he might be delivered from his thorn in the flesh. And the answer came not in the drawing out of the thorn, but in this rich promise, my grace is sufficient for you. But secondly, there are many troubles, however, which must be regarded as paternal chastisements. Chastisements from God. So what is that? Well, you not allow your little child, for example, to play with a knife just because they wanted to. You take it away. And so does God. There are pleasures and earthly possessions, which, as we know very well, are like sharp tools in our hands. 
And there comes a time when God finds it necessary to take them away. And we sob and we, we weep and we cry out against God, but our Father knows best. And we are his children, and he's treating us as such. Chastisements are for our spiritual and our eternal good. By them we are strengthened and built up in the faith. So let's make a few remarks now in closing by way of a more practical application. And the first is this, our growth, or as it is technically called, sanctification, is distinctly the work of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. And we'll make no mistake if we put ourselves trustingly in his care. To resist is to grieve him. And the Bible warns us, grieve not the spirit of God. And secondly, our growth is likely to be gradual. Now, we live in a culture today where we don't like anything gradual. We want to be consummate musicians after one year of study, right? I thought... I would learn to play my guitar in a year. I'd take that out on the road. But I couldn't get the bar chords because my fingers were too small. And so I gave it up. I have a beautiful guitar. It sits in the corner of my bedroom, and I hardly ever pick it up. Because growth in learning to play instruments, as well as anything else in life, is gradual. And it takes a lot of practice, right, ladies? There are some of the lower orbits of plants consisting merely of cellular tissue, no bones, no feathers, which reach their full maturity in a very short time. A mushroom has been known to grow in a single night from a mere atom to a plant six inches in diameter overnight. But it was only a mushroom, you see. And it's said that God's people shall grow like the cedars of Lebanon. I have a book, a very old book, about the mountains and trees in the Bible. The cedars of Lebanon has always fascinated me. You see, the cedars take hold with its roots upon a cliff. And it resists the winds and the, the tempests. And it fills the air with this balsamic odor and it grows on for a thousand years gnarled and twisted but a giant in the forest and that's the same with Christian growth here a little there a little but ever more and more toward the strength and fullness of noble character in Christ and thirdly the glorious consummation, finally, fully grown, a person of full stature, a person restored to the image of God. Isn't that worth all the pains of earnest growth? When Kepler discovered the law of planetary distances, he exclaimed, O oh God, I thank thee that I am permitted to think thy thoughts after thee. That's the glory of manhood. 
the sublime possibility before us all, to share God's thoughts with him, to enter into the fellowship of his holy purposes, to participate in his work, and ultimately to sit together with him on his throne. So let this be our prayer, that we may come to be a perfect person unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we may hear him say at last, of, as with his only begotten and well-beloved Son, Thou art my Son also. Thou art also my daughter, partaker of divine nature, in kinship with Jesus Christ. And I trust that is your love and your passion and desire. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne, opened your word and looked at its meaning towards growth in grace and knowledge in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father God, to grow in the full measure and to love you more and more each day. And that our desire each morning when we put our feet on the ground to ask you to allow us to toil for you one more day. Let that be the desire of our heart. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.